Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Carter Doherty is the communications director of Americans for Financial Reform, a coalition of more than 200 civil rights, consumer, labor, business, investor, faith-based, and civic and community groups working to create an ethical financial system for everyone in America. The most important thing we must do is get big money out of politics. It's a prerequisite to accomplishing everything else. Let's talk about why in the 1990s, Wall Street got deregulated. Did it have anything to do with the fact that Wall Street provided, spent billions of dollars on lobbying and campaign contributions? The game is rigged to work for those who already have money and power. Working families, they're not looking for a handout. In today's America, this financial district is a key power center, a hub for the financialization of an economy in which the control of big money is often central to the control of politics and society. My name is Carter Doherty, and I'm fighting for a financial system that serves ordinary people, not Wall Street. Sorry, not sorry. So, Carter, I would like to start out by asking you to give us an overview of the financial system and how it's designed to work. So there's how we wish it would work and there's how it actually works. And regretfully, in the United States, those are two very different things. Ideally, a financial system is something that serves everybody. It mobilizes the savings that we have and puts them toward productive future uses and imposes a pretty low cost on ordinary people who need to use it and doesn't pile up great fortunes for finance people who, in essence, are kind of in the middle of all transactions. They're taking a slice of the action, but don't actually produce things themselves. And unfortunately, that's not what we have in this country. We have a system that is far too predatory for ordinary people that creates lots of Wall Street billionaires and is, in many cases, too concentrated, too many big players that squeeze out the smaller ones. And I would think that, of course, there are groups of people it works better for and groups who are more harmed by it. Who is this system working for? And if you could think about who is most harmed by it, obviously people who are not billionaires are probably harmed by it. But I want to know who is the most harmed by it? So I think it is safe to say now, as in many cases in American history, it is communities of color. And this has been a particularly vivid 
problem in the last 20 years or so with the mortgage fraud that predated the big financial crisis in 2008. The recession that followed that financial crisis, the Great Recession, has been referred to by a smart former congressman named Brad Miller as an extinction-level event for Black wealth. That was where Black American families saw their wealth decline dramatically as a result of foreclosures and lost jobs and lost savings. And that has continued to this day. We see, unfortunately, in the recession around the COVID-19 pandemic, similar patterns. It's communities of color that get hit hardest as a result of the economic dislocations. And that takes the form of things like being subject to predatory fees so that they can access financial services or even losing homes as a result of foreclosure despite a alleged foreclosure moratorium, that sort of thing. So it's unquestionably traditionally marginalized groups that are most hurt by the financial system that doesn't work for everybody the history upon which that lack of equity is based on. I mean, we can go back to 400 years, basically. We can. And it is a regretful fact of life that going back, you mentioned the 400 years, probably not by coincidence, because that was the year after the first enslaved people arrived in this country. Financial power was always closely entwined with slavery in this country. In fact, I was just reading a great new book that recounts a little bit of this history. And believe it or not, the mayor of New York actually tried to get New York to secede from the Union after the South seceded because financial power was so closely entwined with slave and cotton power that he thought that they should just exit along with the South. Now, of course, Lincoln put an end to that, but that gives you some sense of, I'll call it the amorality of Wall Street. If it fattens bottom lines, if it can be financed, then they're willing to do it. And what about specifically how it impacts women? Women fall into a a similar categories of people that are traditionally disadvantaged by the financial system. Now, it has to be said, there's been tremendous efforts made in the last 50 or so years to clear out the sort of legal wreckage of discrimination against women, things like making sure that women can open their own bank accounts, can inherit money, that sort of thing. Those financial barriers have been mostly cleared away. But as recently as I'm going to say it was about eight years ago, there were some clarifications that needed to be made in regulations to ensure that women could properly apply for credit cards without the approval of their husbands. It's hard to believe that it's that recent, but that does happen. But generally speaking, I think when you ask about women, you have to ask about the situation of many women, which is they might work lower paid jobs. Part of the wage gap reflects the fact that women are concentrated in lower paying occupations. But to fully understand the issue, you have to look within occupations too. Back in 2009, three economists set out to understand the wage gap by following a group of MBA graduates from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. They looked at thousands of men and women who graduated between 1990 and 2006. And their data showed that men had slightly higher salaries right out of the gate. One year out of business school, women were making an average salary of $115,000, while men earned $130,000. But nine years out of business school, things looked really different. Men were earning an average salary of $400,000, while women were earning 60% less, $250,000 on average. 
particularly in the services industry, often in hospitality, in restaurants, gastronomy, that sort of thing. And so as a result, if you make less money, then you are that much more susceptible to a predatory financial system. It's sort of like the old saw of it's very expensive to be poor in this country. If you don't have access to that free checking account, the no-fee credit card, all that stuff that I think probably you and I take for granted, then your financial life simply costs more. And that is the case with many women. And I think we are seeing now just how scary it is for women right now during this pandemic, how women are losing jobs at a disproportionate rate, not only because a lot of those jobs are service jobs, but also because of childcare and caretaking, which is another thing that I believe that we need to fix. But speaking of fixing things, I want to know what are some things that we can do to fix this. We have some good news in the short term. Give me the bad news first. The bad news is that we have let our financial system get away from its core mission of serving ordinary people for a long time. And I'm talking about 40 years or so. We began deregulating banks in the very late 70s, early 1980s, and that continued on through the 80s, the abolition of a Depression-era law called Glass-Steagall that was designed to keep banks small and manageable. That was repealed in the late 1990s, and we sort of let finance go off the rails. Banking failures were not a big feature of American society between the New Deal and the early 1980s. It was deregulation that brought us that. And then we had the financial crisis in 2008, and we had a measure of accountability brought to Wall Street with the big Wall Street reform law that Congress passed, the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as championed by Senator Elizabeth Warren. So there were some promising signs, but what we're still missing is a financial system that is busted down to size, doing the things that it should be doing for ordinary people and not simply making a small number of people on Wall Street really rich. So that was the bad news. Now, what's the good news on how we can fix this problem? So the good news is we do have a crop of regulators coming in that have been nominated by President Biden who have their eyes on the ball and are prepared to tackle some of the more serious problems. I'll give you one example, which is Rohit Chopra is a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission and a veteran of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And Mr. Chopra has been nominated to now run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's a tough advocate for ordinary people, for consumers. He proved that as an advocate for student borrowers. And already you see, even in an acting capacity, thanks to the appointments of President Biden, some real get up and go at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to address the problems brought on by the pandemic, to immediately work to understand what consumers are experiencing and how best the CFPB can help them. That is something that the Trump appointees, they simply abdicated that role. I'll mention one other person that's been nominated, a guy named Gary Gensler. He's been nominated to run the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, right? One of the alphabet soup agencies that you might not know about. Gensler is an interesting guy. He used to work for Goldman Sachs many years ago and had a sort of conversion of sorts about where he thought the financial system needed to go and ultimately ended up running a smaller 
regulator after the financial crisis. But he's a guy who's kind of, he's kind of, use your metaphor, he's a Nixon goes to China. He's a guy who came off Wall Street and knows where all the bodies are buried. And he is going to run the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I think this is a guy who has a really good sense of what needs to be done. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but he is the sort of bright spot that one needs at this time in history. Will you do me a favor and just explain to everyone all the moving parts in the financial system in this country? The system we have in this country for regulating finance is a complicated one. It's a legacy of the New Deal and a lot of other decisions that have been made over the past century. We have the Treasury Department that oversees the nation's tax system. We have the Securities and Exchange Commission that regulates things like stock listings, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, most of that stuff that you hear on the evening news about, that is the SEC. We also have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that you see on a little plaque anytime you go into a bank that says your deposits are insured by the FDIC. That's to make sure that the small depositors don't lose their money. And most recently, we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is something that was the brainchild of now Senator Elizabeth Warren. And the CFPB's job is to look out for consumers in the financial services marketplace. So they do things like enforce rules around mortgages or installment loans or credit bureaus, that sort of thing. And their job is to really, as Senator Warren likes to say, be the cop on the beat for consumers. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I want to talk about and touch on money and politics, especially from the financial industry. Will you just give my listeners an overview of where the money comes from and then where it goes? So it's a lot of money and it's money that it's hard to believe, but these are rounding errors for such a powerful industry. But my organization, Americans for Financial Reform, calculated that in the last election cycle, the financial services industry put about $2 billion into American politics. As president and as somebody that knows most of those people, I could call the heads of Wall Street, the heads of every company in America. I would blow away every record. And that's just what we know about, Alyssa, because there's this whole flood of dark money that comes from places we can't even identify. And wait, I mean, does that exist only as direct donations to politicians? No, no. That's money spent on lobbying. That's money spent on donations to political action committees that politicians run and then donations directly to their campaigns. But again, that's a slice of it. That's certainly not all of it. It's a lot of money. There's one Wall Street billionaire, Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone, who himself is worth 17 or $18 billion. That's just one guy. 
So these are small amounts for such a big industry. What do you think some of the specific effects that this money has had? One thing I think it does, Alyssa, is it simply over time, it orients the political system toward thinking about the industry's priorities as its priorities. I wish I could tell you it's as simple as pinstriped Wall Street banker walks into a congressional office and plunks down you know, a couple stacks of $100 bills and gets what he wants, but it's never that simple. It's more of the fact that Wall Street's money pays for lobbyists, it goes to think tanks, it goes to PR firms, all those places that sort of make up the kind of dialogue that we have about finance in this country. And over time, it corrodes our debate, our discussion about what the financial system ought to be in favor of the idea that the priorities of public policy should be what Wall Street wants. And that's what my organization is fighting every day, by no means alone. They're great champions of this in the halls of Congress. I mentioned one, Elizabeth Warren. Another one definitely worth mentioning is Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. He's now the chairman of the banking committee. So, you know, this can be done, but it's a long game. Back in January, a number of members of Congress refused to impeach Trump after he incited an attack on the Capitol. How are those members funded? So the main category of lawmakers we're talking about here are the 147 members who objected to Joe Biden's victory. That's eight senators, and of course, the rest were representatives. And those folks got quite a lot of money from Wall Street. I'll just throw out a few numbers, is that the Center for Responsive Politics, which is a very credible nonpartisan organization that tracks this stuff, put at $45.8 million the amount of money that these members got from the financial services industry in the last two years. The American Bankers Association was the top corporate political action committee that funded these 147 members, $1.3 million. Kevin McCarthy, who runs something called the Congressional Leadership Fund or influences it, over $44 million. Stephen Schwartzman, the billionaire I mentioned, who is a founder of Blackstone, over $37 million that all went into the political system. We are going to drain the swamp. It is undermining American democracy. Lobbying is arguably the American government's oldest profession. It's an industry worth over $3.5 billion with around 12,000 professionals and hundreds of firms, unions, trade associations, and interest groups in the field. It's one of the main drivers of policymaking in the U.S. Now, we can't always track them precisely to those 147 because, you know, sometimes they go into big pots. But nevertheless, these are people who were in substantial part bankrolled by Wall Street. So it's clear for anyone that watched the trial that this insurrection was caused by Trump, motivated by Trump and those who enabled him lying to the American people that the election was stolen. So I'm confused as to why Wall Street continued to support these people. Well, there were some unintentionally very revealing statements by some Wall Streeters and some financial services lobbies after the January 6th insurrection. I particularly noted something from Lloyd Blankfein, who's the former CEO of Goldman Sachs. He shamefully waited until after the events of January 6th, after four years of Donald Trump, to speak publicly and clearly about Wall Street. And what he said was, 
Trump delivered lower taxes and less regulation. You know, he told the New York Times, and I'm quoting directly here, he was delivering what we wanted. We put a clothespin on our nose. We weren't ignorant of the kind of risks we were taking. We repressed them. So in a nutshell, Wall Street threw democracy under the bus for the sake of tax cuts, deregulation, and business-friendly judges. There's just not another way to put it. Profits were more important to them than democracy. And anybody who thinks that we first learned of Donald Trump's contempt for democracy on January 6th has to have had their head in the sand for the last four years. And what do you think is the culpability of the financial services industry in this lack of accountability? It's really a question of where this industry wants to put its priorities. And I'll give you an example is that there are some companies, industry sectors who are saying, you know, we're not giving any money right now. There are some that are saying we're not giving any money to these 147 members. But the fact is, a lot of them are still hedging their bets. The American Bankers Association, for example, cited the troubling events of January 6th as though an armed insurrection is simply troubling, that they would take those events into account when they did their future giving. And what they're really telegraphing here to Republicans is, look, we're with you. This was a little crazy, but we need to let the dust settle here. And they're biding their time trying to figure out if Republicans might take back control of the House in 2022 and avoiding irritating them. It's, it's as simple as that. I'm trying to even think how we message around this to raise more awareness and to make a ruckus. It can sound so wonky, and I don't know how we get the American people to understand how this should be a priority. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think, first of all, never doubt that the American people, Republicans and Democrats, are with you on the question of reforming Wall Street. My organization has polled this for 10 years, up, down, and sideways, large majorities, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. They want tougher regulation of Wall Street. They want more reform of the financial sector. They want these bankers brought under control. And if you consider my progressive organization to be not credible, then consider that the Koch brothers even pulled this one time and found the same thing. It's a widely held view. So what I think we need to constantly emphasize in questions of reforming the financial system is this is a system that does not work for ordinary people. And Wall Street pumps money into the financial system in order to increase its own profitability to make itself ever more richer at the expense of ordinary people. The money that goes into the pockets of Wall Street financiers doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from your pocket and some people's pockets more than others, notably communities of color. I think this is a very straightforward message that we need to constantly be delivering of, look, Wall Street profits at your expense. So what do you think a fair financial system looks like? That's a really good question. And that's something we are starting to get into more. I think now that some good changes are realistic and we're not just playing defense, 
hanging on by our fingernails, I should yeah, say, time to time, I get it. You know, how it felt over the last four years. I'll give you a, a couple things in broad brushes. One, we need good regulators. We need good people in the government. Janet Yellen shows the promising signs of being a very good Treasury Secretary. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for a global minimum tax rate. Uh, the goal, getting other countries on board in order to prevent offshoring. This is a tax rate for corporations. Let's listen. Competitiveness is about more than how U.S. headquarters com- headquartered companies fare against other companies in global merger and acquisition bids. It's about making sure that governments have stable tax systems that raise sufficient revenue to invest in essential public goods and respond to crises. I mentioned a few of the Biden appointees. You know, we got to make sure that the ship we have right now is sailing in the right direction. Yeah. Then I think we need to think about the bigger questions of how we restructure finance. And I'll give you one example, which is a bunch of senators and representatives last Congress introduced something called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which has been called probably the most significant financial reform legislation since Dodd-Frank. And it is something that would reform the private equity industry, these massive pots of money that Wall Street has put together that now owns large swaths of the economy. So that's one piece of legislation. Another is to reinvigorate some of these ideas that we lost after we turned our back on the New Deal tradition, things like the 21st century Glass-Steagall legislation to size down the banking sector. Ways that we can think big, Alyssa, are the ways in which we reshape finance to help ordinary people. And probably the best example I can give you of that is there is a move afoot more and more to talk about how the postal service could double as a bank, offering simple financial services to people of very modest means, a checking account, a savings account, low or no fees at all, and would plug this gap of these millions of Americans who are unbanked or underbanked. And it's not a crazy concept. If you've ever traveled to Europe, you've seen their postal banks all over the world, Europe, Japan, other places. But using the post office, this great public resource we have to solve a problem of either no banking services, underbanked, or predatory banks. And it's the idea that if we create vibrant public options that the government sponsors, that we can not only provide services to people who need that help, but provide an important counterweight to the private sector. It's not a dissimilar idea from the public option in healthcare that's been discussed so much. That's really interesting. And do you think that we will be able to achieve some of these things that will make the financial system work better for everyone? Look, I don't think there's any question it's going to be a long, long haul for all of these, but I do think momentum is on our side. And I'll A big picture thing to remember, whether you're talking about financial reform or environmental regulations, climate change, occupational safety and all that is this old saw of, oh, you can't regulate or impose government rules on the economy that results in being less efficient, less prosperous. That's all Reagan-era garbage that the public no longer believes. This is shown in ample ways that people want the government to solve problems. And so I think we're past this hump 
that we've, as progressives, have fought in so many ways of the premise that the government should get involved in the economy is we've passed that. So that opens the door to these say, okay, you want to solve a problem now. Okay, what are we going to do about it? So I think we are in a much, much better place. I think, broadly speaking, whether it's postal banking or any of these other issues, what we really need is to stick together. Elizabeth Warren gets credit for coming up with the idea of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She came up with an idea for a new independent agency that would have one simple overriding mission, standing up for consumers and middle-class families. So there I was standing next to President Obama thinking, we're really going to do this. We are going to change the world for millions and millions of people. It was amazing. She's always quick to assign credit for that agency existing to the consumer advocates, to the labor unions, to the faith groups, to the community-based activists who all locked arms and said, we are going to make this happen. And they did. That's something we have to remember about any of these positive changes is it's really going to depend on collective action, on focusing the story on people who are harmed by the financial system and that we need change. And this issue is so intersectional, right? It literally touches on everything that holds us back as a nation for fulfilling equitable opportunity and prosperity. So how can people find what you do and find ways of helping you? My boss, Lisa Donner, the executive director of AFR, is a longtime organizer, and she's fond of saying that Reforming the financial system is a great return on your time because it is so intersectional, because it affects so many different aspects of our society. And the opportunities to make people's lives better are plentiful if we act. And I'll throw one more number at you. This is a happy number, Alyssa, which is that when the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was under good leadership appointed by President Obama, it returned $12 billion to American consumers, to over 29 million people in the form of either refunded, unjustly charged fees or canceled debts. So we know government can work if we choose that we make it work. But it's a powerful industry. I would say Wall Street is the most powerful industry in the world, and it's going to take a fight. You can learn more about Americans for Financial Reform on our website, which has a somewhat counterintuitive URL. It's ourfinancialsecurity.org. And there you'll see lots of different things that we work on, whether it's consumer protection or this phenomenon of private equity that I described to you or financial stability, presenting financial crisis, but also things like postal banking. There are lots and lots of issues that people can be engaged on, and it's going to take more than a village. It's going to take a city. It's going to take a country. Well, thank you so much. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope are a couple of things. I'll say two things is one is that the case that we make is really, really clear. I think it's very easily understood when you have people who are worth tens of billions of dollars on Wall Street getting rich at the expense of the rest of us. This is a case we can make it if we want to. The other thing I'll tell you, Alyssa, is that AFR is a coalition of over 200 groups, consumer advocates, labor unions, community activists, you name it. And I have met so many inspiring people who've done so much really good work around this that that gives me hope every time I get on a phone call with some of these very, very smart, very motivated people. Well, Carter, you give me hope. 
I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much for all the work you do and for being a part of the podcast. So why were the giant banks and the Republicans against it? Well, they wanted to keep getting away with their tricks and traps. Let's be clear. The 2008 financial crisis was a toxic mix of racism, corruption, and shameless greed. And then after the crash, Wall Street had the goal not only to take taxpayer handouts, but then to double down, spending a million dollars a day to try to kill the CFPB. But we fought back. Consumer activists pushing from the outside and President Obama and Vice President Biden pressuring from the top. So if we're going to continue to be a capitalist nation, we need to be one where access to capital is available to everyone. People who are opposed to massive financial reform often claim that those working for equity in America are demanding a redistribution of wealth. But you can't have a redistribution of wealth until wealth is distributed in the first place. And right now, American wealth is not being distributed. Not only does it hurt each of us individually, unless you happen to be wealthy enough that it doesn't matter, it hurts us as a nation. With very few exceptions, we've seen that the super wealthy and the corporations who make them that way act in ways that are only good for themselves. Jeff Bezos made billions of dollars during the pandemic while his warehouse workers and drivers struggled with huge COVID outbreaks and have a hard time paying their bills. Walmart's executives made billions while their workers often rely on food stamps to make it to the end of the month. And as we've heard from Carter in this episode, many of them work to fund politicians who have no ethical compass just so long as the money keeps coming in. It has to end. It's destroying our country and preventing normal functioning of government. A good place to start is the For the People Act, which will reduce the influence of money in politics. It's not the whole fix, but it certainly will help. So tell your representatives in the House and Senate that you want money out of politics and an economy that works for everyone, not just those who are already rich. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.